Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. This week's episode is sponsored by Wild Deodorant. Wild is a natural deodorant that is free of aluminium and parabens, whilst also being cruelty-free and vegan. I don't know about you, but I have tried quite a few different natural deodorants in the past. But what I love about Wild is that it actually works. I am basically on the move all day, running around after Rose, who has become Speedy Gonzalez, on the school run and sometimes recording a podcast in between all that chaos. And Wild, which I've been using for a while now, actually keeps me fresh as a daisy. I've been using the Coconut Dream scent and it's absolutely lovely. It comes in a fully sustainable aluminium case for life with little refills that you pop in that are biodegradable and recyclable. We all know that it's the little choices we make that make the difference when it comes to being more sustainable. And the deodorant that we choose to buy and use is such a simple switch to start being kinder to both our skin and the planet. So go to Wild today and get yourself this natural deodorant that actually works. You can order by going to wearewild.com and you will get 20% off your first order if you pop in the code MOTHERKIND at the checkout. That's wearewild.com. Pop in MOTHERKIND for 20% off. So thank you to Wild for supporting the podcast, which enables me to keep putting out weekly episodes like this one. So on to this week's episode. Hey everyone, I hope you're really well this week. So it's quite well documented, isn't it, that times of dramatic societal change, which I think is fair to say we have been in and are still in, can either undo relationships or strengthen them. Well, my guests this week are married couple Nate and Katie Klemp, and they found their relationship nearly undone actually at the point of breakup because of the power struggles that they were experiencing over trying to make things fair. So they decided to try a new way, which they call the 80-80 marriage. So the idea of this is that each person gives 80% as opposed to the traditional 50%, which is what they call radical generosity. So it's basically based on doing more than required for the greater good of the marriage. And it isn't based on the kind of traditional gender roles or this idea of fairness. Now, you might be thinking, hang on a minute, Zoe, I am barely able to give 50% given what is going on. How on earth are you now suggesting that we give more? And I hear you on that. And I do challenge them on that exact point in the episode. And their answer was fascinating. So this is a model based on, instead of saying what's best for me, you say what's best for us. Simple, but quite radical if you think about what that might mean. So I cannot wait to hear what you think of this idea. Would you be willing to give it a go? What difference do you think it might make in your marriage or actually any relationship? 
let me know over on Instagram or drop me an email, Zoe at motherkind.co. I love hearing from you. As I say every week, here is the episode. Welcome. I am so excited to be chatting to you both this evening. I was just sharing it's 8.30 here. So I've just done that typical bedtime handover to my husband. And we're going to be talking about some of that tonight, aren't we? Definitely. So let's get straight into it. What is an 80-80 marriage? So an 80-80 marriage is really built on two primary things. One is a mindset. So instead of trying to set up your relationship so that it is just exactly 50-50 fair, instead your mindset is that of radical generosity where you're striving to each do 80%, sort of overshoot the mean. The first part is your mindset. And the second part is really your structure. So instead of doing it where you're each striving to do what's best for you as individuals, you instead are doing an 80-80 version, which is shared success. How can we get really clear on what our shared values are so that we win together? And did you come up with this because you've always had this fantastic 80-80 marriage and then thought, we need to share this with the people? Or was it because, I know your story, so this is a very leading question, but was it because that kind of 50-50 model wasn't working? I think it was definitely the latter. That model was not working for us. You know, we got married and we're both professionals. We were both striving in our careers. You know, we actually met in high school. And we like to say that during those early years, the conditioning we received from everything, our culture, schools we went to, was saying like, be your best as an individual, do something amazing as an individual. So then we got together, got married. And the big question became the question that I think all modern couples face, which is how can you be equals and in love? And so the way we answered that question early on was to say, well, let's try to be equals by just making everything fair. Like 50-50 became the motto of our marriage. And it really did not work well for us. You know, we actually interviewed over 100 people for this book because we wanted to know, you know, what is the experience of modern marriage outside of just our life? And we found that this idea of keeping score and keeping this kind of constant mental tally in the background was leading most couples to all sorts of conflict and drama. And ironically, for us and for many couples, was actually making our marriage less equal. So we can talk about why that was the case, but but what we found is that this technology of finding equality through fairness was just an absolute backfire for all sorts of reasons. Tell us more about that. Why did in this striving for equality, which sounds so good on paper, right? How did that actually lead you to feeling this word comes up a lot in the book, resentful? Yeah. As we were early in our relationship, I was the one who was the over-contributor. And some of this is a really interesting just sort of legacy hangover from the way that I was raised. I have fantastic parents. My mom, she stayed home. Her primary job was just raising the kids. And she was brilliant at that. But when it was me, I was like, okay, I want to, you know, be an amazing spouse. I want to raise my daughter. I want to also like be a great professional at a certain point everything started tearing at the seams. Mm -hmm. And so there was a point where I was like, you need to do more. 
But I said it sort of in that tone where there was a lot of like, hey, you're not pulling your weight. Hey, you're not doing your part. How about you do this thing over here? Hey, I'm too busy for that. And as I was delegating some of the things that were really hard for me to do or that I felt like I didn't have time for, it didn't actually feel good to either of us. It felt to him like I was just sort of piling on the things that I was like, I don't want to do that. You have to do it. And then I was complaining about it because let's be clear, the brilliant, incredible man that I married to, he really can't load a dishwasher. (laughs) And so then I would complain about things. So I was mad that I was doing it again. I was mad that I was having to ask for it. I was mad that I had to do... I mean, it was just this whole cycle where everything actually got further and further apart. Yeah, meanwhile... She's upset because I'm not doing enough. But my experience was one of like, nothing I do will ever be good enough for you, right? I actually work really hard to clean the house and she would walk in the door and point out that one thing that wasn't clean. And so I responded by withdrawing and doing less because why should I do anything if nothing's going to be good enough? And that's how, you know, I was saying before, the intention of fairness is good. It's equality. We want that the effect is often greater inequality. And that's exactly why, because that dynamic can often lead the under-contributing partner to just say, screw it, I'm going to do nothing. And then all of a sudden, the over-contributor is doing everything, right? If they were doing 70%, now they're doing 90%. So that's the kind of dynamic that we saw in our marriage. And we see in so many marriages, especially people who have kids, young children, It's just really easy to fall into those dynamics. It's interesting, isn't it? Because whilst you kind of say like you're striving for that fairness, as you say, if you've got one partner over-contributing, I would call it kind of controlling, you're really not aiming at that fairness, are you? What you've really got is someone trying to be the CEO and a micromanaged, pissed-off employee. (laughs) In your research, did you quickly see that it was the woman taking in that kind of, I feel like I have to be the CEO and the man kind of being the disgruntled, you know, line manager. (laughs) It is such a great description. I would say that was certainly the most represented dynamic that showed up in our interviews was that the woman, often again, because there was sort of this, I can be superwoman belief as she entered the relationship, she would try to do everything. Mm -hmm. And then at the point when she broke was when things would really go sideways because what would happen is exactly what you're describing. In trying to do everything, it was actually a control move. And so you're actually not available for help if you're controlling everything. And so if you really want your partner to show up and be your equal then you need to be willing to let go of some things. And I'll speak from experience. I did this early on where I think the most acutely in our finances, where I was like, I was all over that. I was really, in retrospect, sort of ridiculously meticulous. Or I was like, I will reconcile to the penny. And then I was really mad anytime there was like spending or anything. And so for me to be able to say, I need some help, I also needed to be willing to let go and let Nate do it a different way. What about in other dynamics of couples, like same-sex couples, co-parenting couples, non-married couples, were the dynamics typically the same? What were the patterns that you kept seeing? Yeah, it was really interesting. Interviewed quite a number of same-sex couples. And I would say that there was sometimes this under-contributor, over-contributor dynamic that we saw a lot in heterosexual couples. 
But it was also really interesting that almost every same-sex couple we interviewed said some version of, you know, we have this freedom from the historical baggage of all these gender norms that get passed down. I remember one couple said, look, we're both men. So we don't just don't have to deal with like the stay-at-home mother 1950s archetype and the way that shows up in our relationship because that's neither of us. So there was this just really interesting freedom, whereas with heterosexual couples, we would see again and again that we call it the hangover of, of 80-20. That's the model we named that in the book, where it's kind of this 1950s model, woman does 80%, man does 20% or less, that that model really does have a hangover, even in incredibly progressive couples who say they're all about equality and say that, you know, we've totally transcended the norms of the 1950s. For the most part, that's not true. And I think the pandemic, certainly in the UK, and I know actually in America too, really shone a light on that. And, and there was a lot of incredibly intelligent articles being written here about how actually that was what happened in the pandemic and the women suddenly over-contributing again, in yes. some ways was like us going back to that 1950s model. I know I experienced that when we were doing, you know, the homeschooling, I was doing the bulk of the printing out. It just seemed that under stress, and we know this in psychology, under stress, we revert back to our patterning. Typically that patterning will come from, as you're talking about, that kind of generational I'm sure you've done so much thinking and reflecting on the pandemic and how this is intersected with the 8080 concept. Yeah, it's really interesting because you're naming such an important dynamic, which is when there's stress, it's easy to revert. It's easy to revert either to the patterning that we saw from our parents, or it's really easy to revert back to that sort of competitive fairness mindset. Hey, I printed the handouts for school today. It's your turn. Or I'm the one who figured out Zoom school. Is my meeting more important than your meeting? And you can start to feel kind of that competition and scorekeeping show up again with your spouse. And so in the pandemic, it's actually, I think, magnified a lot of the dynamics that we've seen that where there was real partnership and teamwork, there was more appreciation for it because you saw it firsthand. But where there were sort of cracks in the foundation, those also really got amplified and magnified because we were spending so much time together, really kind of all on top of each other. And so I think as we've been thinking about these dynamics, it in some ways creates even more of an important focus on radical generosity and looking at your life not as, okay, these are the things that I need to do today, fend for yourself, good luck, but kind of looking at your life together and thinking through, how can I contribute in a way that feels like a win for our whole family? How can I appreciate the ways that my partner is really showing up and also contributing? But I think there's a third piece here, which is around that willingness to make a request and to reveal your inner experience that I think for many women in particular, but parents in general, there was a lot of silent suffering that happened in the pandemic, that there was sort of this, well, I guess I will, or I have to, or it's my kids. And so I'll stretch myself. And there wasn't that vulnerable request that said, gosh, I'm struggling or I'm scared or I'm drowning. Here's how you can help. And sometimes it was 
doing a chore or subbing in, but a lot of times it was just the emotional support to be there and hear what we were saying and what we needed so that we could be a team. There's lots I want to unpack there. Let's start with, you mentioned this term, radical generosity. Unpack that for us and how that's different than this point scoring, resentment rising model. Well, radical generosity is really that essential mindset of 8080. And I like to think of it as this pretty extreme move away from our default patterning, which is that attempt to find fairness and to keep score and to make everything 50-50. So, you know, we live in this moment where I think for many of us, that's just what we default to is trying to make everything fair. And radical generosity is really going far beyond that. And it's scary and uncomfortable because it is by definition unfair. Like when you are being radically generous and letting go of the scorecard, you're entering this realm where you may be doing more than your partner and you may be consciously making things unfair in your partner's favor, which is almost irrational and insane, you know, from that calculus of fairness. So that's why I think it's radical. That's why we put that name before generosity. But then if you look at the concept itself, what we do in the book is we try to break it down into three pieces to make it actionable. So the first piece is all about what you do. So it's basically just acts of contribution that you can do each day, really simple things like writing your partner a sticky note that says, I love you, helping them unload the dishwasher, right? just simple things like that. The second is appreciation, which is what we think of as what you see in marriage. So this is kind of interrupting our ordinary habit of seeing everything that our spouse is doing wrong, seeing how they fell short, and really flipping it to see what they're doing right. So we're putting on a different pair of glasses here, and we're looking for all the things they did right, and then giving them a thank you and an acknowledgement for that. And then the final piece is what Kaylee was just talking about. It's this idea of revealing and requesting. And this we think is really important because there are these moments in any relationship inevitably where you feel hurt feelings or disappointment or scared or anxious or angry. And this is just a way to clear that with your partner, to reveal that as a gift to your relationship so that you can come back into connection. What I'm interested in is the transition that a couple would make. So there are a lot of couples that I know right now And I run a workshop on it the other night, actually, that are stuck in that resentment, particularly, you know, new parents, particularly parents who've been homeschooling again for 11 weeks. And they're in that place of resentment. And to hear, you know, what you're saying, I think intellectually, it makes absolute sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. If you did those behaviors, the relationship would start to feel more connected. It makes sense intellectually. But I'm wondering how someone emotionally transitions from that place of resentment, from that place of it being unfair. And I think it has been unfair for women in the pandemic. So that's righteous, right? I think there's some righteous resentment and some righteous frustration. How does someone make that transition to radical generosity, which feels like a journey to travel? How do you get there? So I think that what you're naming is important, that in many respects, all of the data would say it has been unfair. So if you have been feeling that way, you're not wrong, you're not crazy. 
and it's not getting you anywhere better. And so if resentment would get you to more support or more help or feeling better, I would say keep doing it all day long. Problem is resentment actually it's hurting you. It's not helping you. So not only are you still doing more, now you're also bathing your body in cortisol and creating more distance with your partner. So in some ways, the first step is why? Like, why is this a a wise thing to do? Well, one is it, it makes it better for you that if you're going to do the activity anyway, doing it as a gift to yourself, to your children, to your household, to your family. It shifts it so that it's less painful for you while you're doing it. I think the second step in this journey is the willingness to ask for help. And this is where I think tone really makes a difference. Because if you make the request from that righteous, resentful place that maybe you're entitled even to be, it just doesn't land very well. And so being able to say to your partner, gosh, I'm dying over here. I could really use a hand. Tomorrow, would you be willing just to start school and help with that first assignment? Lands really differently from this is day 33 in a row that I have been doing this. This is your turn, like slam the iPad in front of them. So one is recognizing it's for you. Two is the tone with which you ask. And in this resentful place that I think you're describing, I think part of this bridge is also someone has to go first. So if it makes intellectual sense to you, I recognize that it adds to the unfairness, but to be the one who goes first in that scavenger hunt of appreciation, looking for something that your partner did to appreciate them for, it's much more likely that you're going to get someone more willing and more appreciative back than if you start or continue with that tone of resentment. I would just add one thing there that I think is important. You know, I talked about how fairness is this very clunky technology for achieving equality. So, you know, this mindset we've been talking about radical generosity, it's really powerful and important. But in terms of how you can achieve equality, which I think is the real goal for all of us, for our entire generation, really, (laughs) instead of looking toward mindset, we have this other dimension that we like to talk about, which as Kaylee mentioned earlier, it's called structure. And it's just like the way you organize the logistics of your life, things like roles and priorities and boundaries and power, even sex. And I would argue that if you want real equality, you don't go to mindset. You don't go to the way you think about equality. You go to the actual structural conditions. I mean, it's like in a society, if you want to have equality, you don't just talk about equality and believe in equality. You create a structural shift so that real equality is possible. And I think the same is true in marriage that a more skillful pathway to equality is to really look at what are the roles and responsibilities we have? How are those balanced and distributed? Is there a better way? How is power distributed between the two of us? And if you can start to balance those things, that's a much more radical shift and powerful shift toward equality than just like keeping score, which is what we tend to do. And I think it always astounds me, but kind of doesn't surprise me that most people could list out their responsibilities at work pretty easily they could probably list out the values of the organization that they work for but you ask that same question in the most important thing in our lives which is our 
family setup, whatever that looks like, you know, even if we're co-parenting or solo parenting, what are the roles and responsibilities and what are the values of most people wouldn't be able to answer that. I'm sure you've seen Fair Play. I had Eve Rodsky on the podcast and on the back of her, my husband and I sat down and, and we have a spreadsheet now of all of the roles and responsibilities. And it is getting that structure right, as you say, is such an important first step, then living it. But I think you're right. It's structure and mindset. So in your journey to this, you talked about, you know, being at the brink of breaking up at one point. Was it structure that you tackled first? And tell us what that looked like for you. It's an interesting combo answer because the way back for us was absolutely through structure. We had tried doing some things with structure in the past, but from a mindset of fairness and it didn't work. So writing down our roles, trying to make sure that each column was perfectly fair actually had us fight quite a bit about like, how come there are seven things on my side of the ledger and only six on your side of the ledger? And so we had to start from that mindset of radical generosity, but then it was. Step one was to get clear. What is this chapter of our lives about? What are the values that help us know that we are on the right track so that we know what we want to say yes to and what we want to say no to? And then we actually sort of infamously sat down after an enormous fight out to dinner that almost was the end of us. And on a sheet of paper, we wrote down all the things that we were doing. And because it was so lopsided, we looked at it and asked ourselves, what might a better way be? And one of the things that was really important in establishing our roles was not only looking at what would make it fair, but also looking at what did we care about? What were we naturally good at? What were we interested in? Because in some ways we could just divide it up, but it was so much more skillful for us to be able to say, hey, I actually like being in the numbers or I actually care about the finances, but man, taking out the trash just feels awful. And we're going to be like, oh, that walk to the end of the driveway, that's not terrible. And there are little things like that. One of my most favorite stories is it was Jenny Mansbridge, right? Mm, Yeah. Just this brilliant feminist Harvard professor. And when they brought their baby home, her husband asked her, who would you like to have clear the dinner table? And who would you like to have change the baby's diaper? She was like, I want to be with the baby. I'm happy to change more diapers because that's something that I want to do. So having it be not only evenly distributed or fair, but also aligned with the things that you're good at and care about. And so when you talked about values, just because I'm nosy, and I think it's always really interesting hearing other people's values, what came out for you? Well, we have our values written on a little chalkboard in our kitchen, and they're the values of Kajona, which is the name of our family, K.A. from Kaylee, J.O. from our daughter, N.A. from me. And we actually found, by the way, that that name was really powerful for us because it allowed us to ask a new question, which is, what's best for Kajona? When we had a really hard decision, instead of what's best for me, Nate, what's best for Kaylee, what's best for Kajona? Game changer. Anyway, we wrote down these values and we basically have four primary values. At the top of our list, I believe is impact, number one. Then there's love. Then there's security, things like, you know, financial security, making sure we're safe, et cetera. 
And then there's adventure. And so we really decided, you know, for us, those comprise our life. We want to have an impact. We want to go on adventures occasionally, but we also prioritize love and time together. And we do like to have a secure life and want to work hard to make sure that that's possible both for us and our daughter. And how did naming those values change things? I think it was first naming them and also for us having them visible so that we see them all the time. What it really provided was a sieve. So as different questions would show up, we would run them through those four values. So true story, we were walking this weekend. So just a couple of days ago, and we were talking about how, so Nate is also a founding partner at Mindful. I also run an executive coaching business as we're launching this book. And we were talking through, how do we want to balance our professional pursuits? And so we started with our values. Where do we think we can create the most impact? How do we make sure that as we're creating that impact, we stay connected in our family unit? You know, as the world opens up and travel becomes possible through, I used to travel two to three days a week. How much do we want to do that? How does that impact love? How does that create security? And so having those four and for us in order really informs how we make decisions. So talk us through then for someone who's listening, who I think everyone gets the idea of values. Like most people, if they've worked in an organization, get it. In the UK, most people don't have family values, or if they do, they're kind of the unsaid, definitely not written up on chalkboards in many families that I walk into. (laughs) (laughs) So can you talk through how you would use those as a filter, maybe in that example or another one, just to make it really practical for people? Yeah, absolutely. I think in the United States, very few people have a chalkboard with values as well. We're, We're just really like that a cheesy. freakish anomaly. <laughs> we wrote a book on marriage, so I guess that's something we love and we're very interested in. But in terms of how you use those values more concretely, you know, what we found in our own life and in interviewing people is that there's sort of like two main ways that these values show up and can make a huge impact. One is what you say yes to in your life. So those are your priorities, essentially. And the other is what you say no to. And what's really interesting about priorities is we found that it's not enough to say yes to something, to say, yes, we're going to write this book together on marriage. This seems like a good idea. For that to actually get off the ground, we also need to say no to other things. Because, I mean, as we all know, modern life is so crazy And there's so many distractions and there's so many requests and invitations and demands coming our way that if we don't say no, we're never going to get anywhere in terms of our priorities. So I think values are a way to begin thinking more systematically about what we say yes to and what we say no to. So in our case, if there's an opportunity that comes around that seems great, that says, you know, hey, Nate's going to have this awesome opportunity And by the way, he's going to be away for a week or two every single month. We would have to say, well, does that fit with our priorities? Do we want to say yes to that? Probably not, because there are all sorts of things that get messed up in our system. And then conversely, when there's something that we're really trying to achieve, like we said yes two or three years ago to the idea of writing this book, we had to say no to a tremendous number of things. And it was really having those values in place and being aware of them that allowed us to be clear in setting those boundaries. I was going to go back to the question, I think, before the question, which was, if you aren't sure where to start, each of you can almost sit down 
Either you can use the 8080 marriage as a starting place. We have a list of values that you can use as a beginning point to start to ask this question. Or if you're feeling creative, start with a blank sheet of paper and just write down the things that for you, if you were looking back, you would say, gosh, our life was successful because, or our life was meaningful because, or I feel really good about our life because, and whatever shows up on that list, because we raised kind children, because we created financial security for ourselves, because we had huge life adventures, because we were able to learn lots of new things. There's only right answers in this inquiry of what your values might be. But if you start from there and then have a dialogue as a couple, that helps you get oriented. So where to start, right? Like corporate values also begin in some ways with what are the revealed behaviors? What are the things that we want to make sure that we're doing as an organization and how we show up in the world? It's so fascinating. You know, I often think about when Guy and I, my husband, were engaged because I'm so into this work and this world like you guys. We're not religious at all, but I found this woman, kind of therapist, coach, who would take us through these sessions to talk about things like this. And I can't tell you how many times it saved us, actually. You know, we did amazing things like, what are your hopes for marriage? What are your fears about marriage? What do you want to take from your parents' marriage into this marriage? And what do you want to leave in that generation? And just, I feel like bringing the rigor that we bring to our professional lives into our personal lives feels so obvious, doesn't it? And it feels upside down that we put more focus on that career you know who am I in my career as opposed to who am I in my marriage and I'm wondering I know you guys work with such a range of people and organizations I'm wondering if you obviously feel that way too that's why you did the book but I'm wondering what you would say to someone you know early in their marriage or maybe struggling in their marriage about values and broader I think that what you did is brilliant if you're early in your marriage, it's a perfect time to sort of have those more rigorous conversations, whether it's using a therapist or a guide or the 80-80 marriage where you say, what are our values? We use an exercise called the life report card. Where in our life do we want to get A's versus where in our life are we okay getting C's or D's? You know, what subjects are we willing to withdraw from altogether? As a couple, what do we want to say yes to and no to on purpose? What are the things I love from the past generation that we say we want to throw off our boat of marriage, if you will, if we imagine the two of us on a boat together? If there's a moment of transition, I think that's another great time to be in these conversations. Transition can be you've hit a hiccup in the road that for whatever reason you feel stuck. That's a great catalyst to say, let's take a time out and instead of arguing about whatever the content looks like it is, let's see if we can create a framework for ourselves. What's important to us that will help us navigate this discussion? Or you could do it in a moment of transition that's more joyful. Maybe it's the birth of a child or kids going to school or kids graduating, that any time that there's a big change in your life is a good time to pause and make sure you're on the same page about those values. I love the way that you said it. They can be so helpful in navigating the curves that happen in the road of life. Or a pandemic. Yes. Yes. My goodness. Actually, I mean, the timing is kind of perfect that we're all in a moment of transition. 
our marriages relationships are under a microscope there's never been more intensity now typically this is where maybe some of my unconscious bias will come out but I imagine finalize the sales of your books it's probably 80 percent women buying the book might be wrong I think that's probably that's accurate yeah you're not wrong you are (laughs) correct in that assumption (laughs) and I think this is part of the problem what if the other partner typically male again talking about that kind of a heterosexual marriage is reluctant or not interested or eye-rolling or saying gosh have you been listening to that podcast again about (laughs) personal development what then and I think that's a really common thing to happen is that the woman comes home with the book and then there's a real kind of resistance there yeah well I think we can both speak to this I can speak from the reluctant partner perspective because I've been there and then Kaylee can give you her perspective from the perspective of a reluctant partner which again, I spent many years living there. So I'm quite familiar with it. I think there is often a sense, all the suggestions coming from the other partner are somehow an attempt to control the reluctant partner, or they're somehow an attempt to get them to do more. There's like an implicit edge of criticism or shaming. And so that's what can often repel the reluctant partner. Because at least for us, The way that the ask came down to me to be more engaged and to do more for many years just didn't land well. I mean, you talked before about this CEO, lineman, delegation thing that happens. Well, for us, like Kaylee was the CEO. I felt like kind of the summer intern, you know, who was just like getting orders and doing things that I needed to do because my boss told me I had to do them. And that created its own version of resentment for me and just made me not want to be engaged at all. So I think from the perspective of the reluctant partner, the way that those asks are being made is important. And one other thing that I would just say before Kaylee goes here is that I think there's this misconception that the reluctant partners kind of have it made and they have this great life because they don't really do that much. They get to just watch TV and be lazy and the other partner does all the work. As a reluctant partner, I can tell you, it is actually extremely painful to be in that position, that it's painful to know you're under-contributing. So I think there's inherent motivation to shift to something different. It's just finding the right way to make that shift. I think that you actually gave one of the most important tips a little bit earlier, which is that of being willing to loosen your grip on control. That in order to have your partner really engage and show up to support, some of it is certainly about the way that you ask and the willingness to make a request, but it's also the willingness to let your critic just be quiet and instead appreciate the contribution that shows up. The willingness to accept imperfection, certainly not in ways that are dangerous, but in ways where it's okay if the forks go different directions in the dishwasher. And it's also okay if the school uniform doesn't match perfectly. And it's okay if the kids eat cereal two meals for one Saturday, that there are all kinds of ways that if I'm willing as a mom, as a spouse, to just loosen my expectation of perfection and instead shift to appreciation, there's a lot more willingness that's possible. Yeah, I often say, 
if you don't put the ball down, no one else can pick it up. Like if you're a sports team, like if you're just grabbing onto that ball, running around, getting tired and annoyed with your teammates, it's like you need to put the ball down. I love that because there's also, I think the resentment too, that you described so beautifully where I'm running around holding onto the ball and I'm so mad at you that you haven't picked it up, but it would actually require them to yank it out of my arms. (laughs) Nate, I'm interested in something that you said about the uncomfortableness of knowing you're under-contributing. As a clearly intellectual man, clearly into personal development, did you not at any point think, I'm going to step up here? I'm going to lead this conversation. And if not, why not? How did you get in that kind of stuck place? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. From my perspective, it was uncomfortable. It was painful to be there. And yet, I think the reason that I did not step up, even though on some level, I knew that that was available to me and I could try and I could become more engaged was, I guess I felt like it just wasn't going to be greeted with, you know, appreciation that I was going to end up doing all this work. And I was going to basically end up in the same place, feeling just as uncomfortable but feeling uncomfortable and having done a bunch of work. I mean, it's fascinating. I've never thought about this question. So it's a great question. I think it comes down to this. There were two options. Option one, feel uncomfortable. Option two, feel uncomfortable and do a lot of work. And given those two options, my thought was, I might as well just feel uncomfortable and not do a whole lot of work because I don't see the path out of this. And I think that there is a path out of this. That's what we've learned. But when you're really caught in the dynamic, it really feels like this is reality. There is no other arrangement. There's no other way to think and believe in the context of an intimate relationship. Like this is the cage I'm in (laughs) and I can't see outside of it. Which makes me wonder if that isn't the intervention of something like listening to a podcast or reading a book, that it gives you an ability to say, hey, what if we tried this roles exercise or, Hey, what if we wrote this down or, Hey, I'd love to hear your experience here. And I promise to greet it with appreciation. If there isn't some sort of catalyst from the outside that then interrupts sort of the cage that it feels like you're in and allows you to try something different. It's just fascinating to me how we know from your book and, you know, many other incredible books at the moment that women are taking on the majority of the invisible labor and the emotional labor. And it's just fascinating how it seems that the way out of this, you know, as you said, 80% of these books are being bought by women. And I suspect it's 80% of the women bringing these conversations, you know, again, more emotional labor. It just feels fascinating to me. And I'm wondering how much of that is unconscious as well. What's really strange about our situation too, is during those early years, I was getting a PhD in the study of justice and equality. So I was getting a PhD in political philosophy, studying theories of justice and equality and how those apply to social arrangements and communities and family systems and things like that. So like, if anybody should have gotten it, it was me, but I didn't. So you I got somehow the micro, I just but you didn't really get the mic, <laughs> Yeah, I completely bracketed that whole conversation from what was happening in our house. So tell us a bit about how your marriage feels today. I mean, I would say there's nothing perfect about any marriage. And we are certainly, I think, evidence of that, that we write about it, we think about it, but we're still very, very far from perfect. 
And yet what it feels like, I'll speak for myself to me, is that the baseline tone is that of gratitude, is of appreciation, and that both of us are working hard to see how can we contribute and be kind to each other. And also the structure feels much more equal. And whenever there's an upset, whenever there's a moment of like, huh, that landed funny, there is a reveal so that we go back to it. And we are, as you can imagine, in constant dialogue where something will come up. I'm like, so that feels like it's not one of our priorities. And yet we said yes to it. What's up with that? So to me, it feels like it's a friendly, safe place to be in this inquiry and to continue to live aligned with what's most important to us, which we wrote on that chalkboard. Well, what I was thinking was funny too, is we did a walk right before this interview. And I said to Kaylee, Hey, what are we having for dinner tonight? (laughs) And she's like, what is that my responsibility to like the assumption of your question is that I'm somehow responsible for planning all the meals. And it was great because, you know, that's the kind of thing that happens all the time in every relationship. But you know, I think now we're in a place where we can just reveal, like she was able to reveal, hey, it makes me feel like you just are expecting me to plan the meals. And I was like, oh yeah, totally. Let's add a little structure here. When we get home, let's just plan out the meals together for the week. So that way we're on the same page. We've got it done. I would say that to me is the big shift is that those moments of disconnection and disappointment or hurt feelings actually become opportunities to get closer. Whereas before, they were just like pulling us apart inch by inch by inch to the point where we get so far apart that we'd have some major conflicts. That's a really important shift, isn't it? Those conflicts are opportunities for connection. Yeah. Yeah. That requires a lot of inner work, right? On both your parts. Yes. There's definitely individual practice that goes into it. Even just to notice and reveal with hopefully some levity or if not, at least some compassion. But like, wait a second. I just had a total fairness thought. Like, it's not fair that I'm in charge of dinner. And then for us to laugh at it and say, okay, we could use some structure or to be able to see it as a chance to reveal and be known rather than sort of take away that hurt and sulk with it in silence. The other thing that I loved that you said is the baseline of the marriage is one of friendliness. And I think that sounds maybe to like some 20-year-old everything you will of course you're in love you got married you know and I think actually it's so easy for marriages to become not friendly even though you love that person even though you can remember falling in love with them as you describe in the book it's so easy for it to become that kind of hostile environment and I know there's some amazing work out there that that's actually a big predetermined of divorce that hostility and I think modeling that friendliness and coming from a place of as you say that generosity and that love is so important for children to see as well because what's painful about and hard about being married as a parent is that you kind of know that your children are learning what it means to be in a relationship from watching right I find it quite intense. Yeah. Certainly it's intense to know that our kids in some ways will very likely emulate what they see from us. And so 
there's a strong reminder to treat each other, hopefully not with hostility, but I think you're pointing to something even stronger, which is that of prioritization, that sometimes it's not that we're cruel to each other, it's that we just forget about each other. We just take each other for granted. Some of this is also remembering to bring our partners back to one of those top spots on our priority list rather than accidentally letting them fall to the bottom and to the bottom and to the bottom where then it feels like such an afterthought that it's a much larger chasm to cross to come back into connection. What are some of the tools there are so many in the book, but what are some of the tools that, you know, you've been out there talking about this book, talking to readers that people are really grasping, using and seeing a huge difference in their marriage? Maybe you could share two or three. One of them we hear about a lot is simply doing one radically generous act of contribution each day. So I'll hear about this on Instagram from people that be like, oh, I left my partner a sticky note on their computer that says, I love you, or I wrote them a love letter and hid it under their pillow, and they found it a day later. Things like that, I mean, it really only takes a minute or 30 seconds or 20 seconds, but it's a total game changer. And also is conditioning that habit of radical generosity and sort of like your daily reminder to pull you out of the fairness mindset. So that'd be one. And I would say appreciation that I've been doing a number of events recently with couples. And one of the exercises that I'll have them do is put themselves on mute and then do an appreciation to their partner. And it's amazing to watch their faces where people, they smile huge or they start to cry where just seeing each other through these glasses of gratitude and saying thank you for something they've done totally changes a relationship. So short, so simple, and yet so powerful. And in parenting as well. I've trained myself to be good at this, (laughs) where with Guy, my husband, I'm pretty good now at noticing and thanking. I can't remember where I first, maybe it was in that kind of pre-marriage course we did, but also with my girls. Mm -hmm. I think it's so easy as parents to just notice the coat not hung up, but notice that actually the shoes were put away. Where I, you know, it's so easy. It's negativity bias, isn't it? It's the way that our brains are wired. So it it does take that muscle actually to focus on the appreciation. But I agree with you, like the simplicity of that. I mean, radical is a word we've used a lot, but I think it is. It is radical to notice what someone is doing right, particularly when you're exhausted and it's a pandemic and you've been homeschooling and it's very easy to take all that resentment and that angerness and dump it on someone else. Very easy to do that. So it does feel, it does feel radical actually to not do that and focus on what someone's doing right. We've actually been talking about this quite a bit recently as a scavenger hunt. And especially if you have little ones around your home is that you find what you're looking for. So if you're looking for what your partner or what your child has done wrong, I guarantee you'll find it. You will find the shoes in the wrong place. You'll find the coat on the floor. You'll find the masks that have somehow all managed to disappear. And yet if you also go on a scavenger hunt for things that your partner or your kids have done right, exactly what you're describing, you also find them. And what a treat to be able to say to each one in your life who you love at the end of the day, hey, I have something I noticed today and to have something that you found that you can appreciate about them. Yeah. We do this little golden book with Jesse, my five-year-old where 
I list out what I noticed from that day. It's a really sweet thing and just tiny stuff. And then if I'm feeling extra zhuzhi, I'll link it to a quality. I noticed you shared your toy with your sister and I didn't have to ask you. That shows mummy you're really developing generosity and I'm really proud of you for that. It's so simple, actually. It takes not that much time. And watching her little face glow. I haven't got a golden book for my husband yet. Maybe that's... (laughs) That feels a bit like being an idea. Feels like being the CEO. That (laughs) yeah, we have another ritual that we love with appreciation. Where sometimes at dinner, we'll always have a check-in at dinner for our family. But one of our favorite check-ins is the appreciation check-in. And basically, what that is is there's the three of us, and everybody at the table will appreciate the other two people at the table. So you know, I'll appreciate Kaylee and our daughter. And man, it takes like two minutes or so. But I always leave that just feeling like sky high, you know, having my nine-year-old be like, daddy, I really appreciated you for teaching me this new thing on the piano or whatever it is. So that's a way you can ritualize it and turn it into a habit. That's another thing we talk a lot about in the book is that if you just read a great book or you go to a great marriage retreat, and then you go back to your ordinary life and you don't develop any habits, really nothing is going to change. So having those ways to ritualize it, we also do it before we go to sleep just between the two of us, we'll do one appreciation. And again, it takes 30 seconds, but it totally shifts the energy right before we fall asleep. So those habits are key. Anything else that you want to share that we haven't touched on? So we've talked quite a bit about the pandemic. And one of the tricky things about the pandemic is how much time and space we spent together And so ironically, what we've heard from couple after couple is that they are feeling close, but not connected. Yeah. One of the most powerful things that you can do, especially if it feels like you're kind of in a rut or if it feels like you're not really that close is to intentionally create some space. So some of that's physical space, even if it's just a walk around the block to be apart and then come back together, but also to create some headspace leave your devices for a half an hour and have a conversation where it's just the two of you without the distractions of your phone or your notifications, it can actually change the quality of connection that you have with each other. One of the things that we've been talking about a lot with couples are different questions that you can ask each other. Because if you ask, how was your day? It's very likely that you're going to get fine. How is yours? Or good. How is yours? Whereas if you ask a question like, hey, as you dream into the future five years from now, what do you imagine? Or if you ask a question like, when in the last six months did you feel really loved? It just changes the way that you're engaging and it opens up new possibilities for closeness. Yeah, you're so right. You know, in some ways we've never been closer. (laughs) Physically. And yet more disconnected yeah I think that's true of many relationships but particularly you know marriages yeah in a pandemic for sure I always ask the same question at the end of every episode which is if you could give just one gift and I guess I'll ask it to each of you individually to all the mothers in the world what would that one gift be and why if I could give one gift to all the mothers in the world it would be the courage and vulnerability to ask for help and believe yourself deserving of the radical generosity 
of your partner who loves you. Yeah, and what I would say is if you have a reluctant partner, this is coming from a former reluctant partner, it is possible to shift that pattern. It may not be easy and it may take some time, but we're sort of a living example of that. So hopefully that offers some hope. I think that's important. And just to say, you know, the book is fantastic. Thank you for writing it. And there's so much practical tools, advice, stories in there. So where can someone find out more about your work, the book, how to connect with you? So 8080marriage.com, 8080marriage.com is our website that has information on the book. We also do quite a bit on Instagram. So we're 8080marriage on Instagram and, you know, we have daily tips, things like that. And also a newsletter, which you can get information about on our website. Fantastic. Thank you. It's been a joy. And I think it's so timely, this conversation. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.